Um, in your bulletin, I think it's on the inside, left-hand side, I'm not sure, there's a note that uh, two weeks from tonight will be our last Wednesday night, and we're going to be doing a panel discussion. We're going to have several people up on stage here, and what, what we would like to do is collect some really relevant, meaningful, difficult, maybe challenging questions that you would have that, that we can present to this panel on anything having to do with sexuality, uh, marriage or singleness, celibacy, same-sex attraction, all the many different topics. And, and I would say it like this. Please f- feel free to ask the kind of question that you would say, I'm afraid of being asked this because I don't know how to respond. Does that make sense? Think of it that way. Like, man, other people. So it might not even be your question, but it's more one that you'd say, I've heard people ask this, or I have been asked this, or I'm afraid to be asked this. And um, there's, a, there's a number in there, and you can just text those, those questions to that number, and then we'll have those, and, um, and um, we'll, we'll use those. So in this series, it's frequently asked questions. We're using these last few weeks to, uh, to speak about sexuality in our culture, and, and just to think a little bit about it. Um, last week, we talked about marriage. We, we looked at the authorial intent, meaning what the author of humanity, of sexuality, what God had in mind. We went back to Genesis. And we looked at this idea that there's this unique concept of covenant with the Judeo-Christian understanding of marriage. And covenant is very, very different, we said, from contract. Remember, we said a contract is something where it's made out of mistrust. Um, and you do it in order to kind of have, you know, limited, limited liability and that sort of thing. Make sure that the other person does what they will say. But a covenant is so different. A covenant is made out of trust. And a, and a covenant assumes unlimited liability. So they're very, very different things. And we talked about this idea that, that, that God designed, and this is kind of what we're going to get into tonight. God designed the sexual experience, sexual intercourse. As an experience between a man and a woman. And the purpose of it was, it it, it functioned in multiple different ways, but in terms of their relationship, it was a uniting act. It was a uniting experience. And I would suggest that when Genesis says they were one flesh, when Jesus reiterates one flesh, when Paul says stuff like one flesh in 1 Corinthians 7, they're not simply referring to the physical act. They are referring to physical, but more than that as well. First um, Corinthians six, Paul Paul forbids apprentices of Jesus to to have sex with prostitutes. That doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but listen listen to the reason for why he said it should not be done. First uh, Corinthians six says, uh, "Do you not know that a person who is united in intimacy with a prostitute is one body with her?" For as it is said, two shall become one flesh. Now, you could kind of paraphrase his statement like this. Don't you know that the purpose of sex is always one flesh? To become united to that other person in every single area of your life. Not just physically, but in all soul, all areas of your life. And so, are you seeking to do that with a prostitute? Well, of course not, so don't do it. That's, that's kind of his idea. And he's, he's saying this idea of... It's, it's more than just a flesh thing. It's a, there's a soul connection there because otherwise he would just be saying a tautology. He would say, don't, have, don't become, have one flesh because then you become one flesh. He's saying, don't engage in sexual intercourse because it's, it's meant to be this uniting thing in your life. And Paul insists it's a, it's a radical disconnect 
to give your body to someone to whom you have no intention of giving all the rest of your life. Um, C.S. Lewis likened sex without marriage to, to tasting food without swallowing and digesting it, <laughs> which I think is an appropriate analogy there. Um, the Bible does not counsel abstinence, celibacy, before marriage just, just because it has like a low view of sex. It does it because it, it has a very high, a very high view of sex, a lofty one. See, the biblical view implies that sex outside of marriage, it's not just that it's morally wrong, meaning like breaking a, a, a rule. It's that it's personally harmful to the individuals who engage in it. See, if, if sex is designed to be a part of making a covenant and experiencing that covenant's renewal, then, as Tim Keller puts it in his words, he says, we should think of sex as an emotional commitment apparatus. It functions as a commitment apparatus. It, it has this unique thing of somehow making you more vulnerable, not just physically, but at a soul. It, it somehow causes you to trust the other person a little bit more. It, it, it opens you up to them in new ways. And see, if sex is a method that God invented to do this kind of um, whole life entrustment, uh, self-giving, that sort of thing, it shouldn't surprise us that, that sex makes us feel deeply connected to the other person, even, even when it's done wrongly sometimes. See, un unless, unless you deliberately disable it uh, through habituation or, or you numb the, that, that ability that sex has, um, or that original impulse, sex always makes you feel very personally interwoven with your partner. Um, joined with another human being. You're, you're literally physically joined. And so in the midst of sexual passion, people will, will make these extravagant claims. I want to be with you forever. It's the, there's something about it that has that effect on our soul, on our emotions, on our mind, even, even on our wills. Um, and so here's the thing. If, if you find yourself... Um, feeling marriage-like ties because you've entered into a sexual relationship with someone, feeling that almost the other person has some sort of obligations maybe to you, and yet they've made no moral, no legal, um, no social responsibilities back, they're going to have to call you back in the morning. There's a, there's a disconnect there. And so this, this incongruity leads to feelings of jealousy. Um, it, it leads to feelings of uh, obsessiveness. Um, when two people have sex who are not married. And it also makes breaking up vastly more difficult. Many people stay in relationships, unhealthy ones of just dating relationships, because there's this sense of commitment because they have engaged in sex. Therefore, if you have sex outside of marriage, now think about this, okay? We said marriage has this unique ability to kind of like put the walls down, there's this like kind of connection, a tr there's like a trust, it's almost like a magical trust thing that happens in that process. If, if marriage really has that ability, then if you want to have a lot of different sexual partners, you know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to harden your mind, you're going to have to steal off, harden your mind against sex's power to soften your heart toward another person, toward building trust toward another person. See, the problem is that Eventually, sex loses 
It's covenant-making power over you. And even if one day you do get married, ironically, then sex outside of marriage eventually works backwards, making you less able to commit, less able to, to really trust that other person. Um, there, was a, there was a book written 2011, um, two authors. The title of it is Premarital Sex in America, How Young Americans Meet, Mate, and Think About Marriage. And it provided some really interesting uh, statistics about how uh, young people, millennials in particular, tend to their, their sentiments about sexuality, about culture. And um, there's, there's one chapter in the book that was entitled 10 Myths About Sex and Relationships that are, that are commonly believed by young people in America. And despite all of the evidence supporting uh, the other side continue to believe it. And, and these were a couple of them here that I thought were interesting. Some myths about sex and relationships. The first one that they, I'll just, I'll just give you four. They gave like 10, but I'm just going to give you four here. The first one they mentioned is this idea that, uh, the introduction of sex is necessary to sustain feelings. Uh, I'm sorry, to sustain a fledgling, fledgling or struggling relationship. And the authors point out that all the evidence to the contrary, the authors point out that empirical fact is that the sooner a relationship starts engaging in sexual activity, the greater chances of breakup are. Uh, second myth that, that they identified was that uh, porn won't affect your relationships. And, of course, all the, again, empirical evidence to the contrary um, on multiple, multiple different levels. They talk about this idea of uh, developing unrealistic expectations about the person and bodies and that sort of thing. But it even went on to say that the number of, of people who engage in pornography before they're married and then begin the dating world and relationships, they see what it takes to have a healthy relationship is so difficult and, and trying and hard and that they actually pull back out of the, out of the marriage pool and tend to just be more... Uh, reclusive because they're not engaging because they see it as too difficult. Pornography promises a much easier path, and so they move in that way. Um, a third myth was that sex need not mean anything. And they identified that while there are a, 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 a portion of men in their study who they said really did get to this point where they really felt it, it didn't mean anything, that that only came by habituation. It came by that what we were talking about earlier of again and again and again kind of stealing off your heart to the power, the covenant-making power that, that sex has. And then the fourth myth that they mention uh, is moving in together definitely, is definitely a step toward marriage. Um, and it was interesting, the authors pointed out, they said that in general, people who cohabitate before marriage are more likely to divorce, the stats show. And cohabitation does not even usually lead to marriage. And they went on to say, you know, despite all of these statistics, um, young people continue, they persist in this, in this belief that um, relationships develop through cohabitation. And, you know, give examples, but he says... The reality is that people who cohabitate and then just move apart, they're forgotten about. It's not, it's not a big deal. So the ones that are remembered are the ones that worked. And so he goes through these different myths, 
And this, this gets us to this, this idea of, of singleness and the call. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, the most unpopular virtue, a Christian virtue in the world, is chastity. Bear none, absolutely. In his book, Mere Christianity, he, he goes through, he talks about the four cardinal virtues. He talks about the three Christian virtues, all these different ones. And he says, the, the, the Christian virtue of chastity, he says, he's writing this in the 50s, you know, right before the sexual revolution. He said, it is the most unpopular one there is out there. Um, but, but this gets us to this idea of our sexuality in relationship to singleness, celibacy. Um, I want you to take a look at a video here for a couple minutes on the screen that kind of um, introduces us to this a little bit better. Yes, I am single. And it's okay. I am single. I am single. And so far it seems to be going well. I'm single. Uh... I think because I'm so young, it's going all right. I like being single right now. The best part about being single is that I can do whatever I want. Freedom? It's freedom. The freedom. I, I don't have to be accountable to anyone for uh, my spending. There's an excitement to being single because your life can change at any second. Uh, I am not single. I've been married uh, for about 11 months. And it's going well, and I would not like my situation to change. <laughs> um, I am single. I've been single for a long time, and I would like my situation to change. Um, yes, I'm single. It's going fine, thank you. And uh, yeah, I would love it. I would love it to change. I would love eventually to be married. It goes in waves, you know. I think that there are some seasons where. It's like the most horrible state in life, like I'm alone. And then there are seasons where I'm too busy, where I can't really think about it. And um, then there are just seasons of quiet and reflecting and angst. And, and then there's peace and contentment. So it comes in waves. Sometimes it's better than others, and sometimes it's worse than other times. Um, but I'm getting older. <laughs> So I think about it. I think, I think, I think about it a lot more now than I ever did. Yes. Yes. Definitely. Definitely. The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, every other reality TV show ever, and like, you know, even looking at the entertainment industry, there's always like one of the big questions for any character is like, oh, will they or won't they? It's just sort of like. It's always, and it's been ingrained in our culture. Movies always have, like, some romantic component. TV, people are always, like, in pursuit of girls. There's the joke, like, you think about shows like How I Met Your Mother. The entire show is about, like, trying to find the perfect relationship. Just think about Kanye and Kim Kardashian. It's always, like, that random cousin or aunt that just, like, is absolutely nosy and stalks you on Facebook. A few months ago, one of my relatives said to me, what are you getting married? And it was said as a joke. Don't think about it. It'll happen when it happens. Don't worry. <laughs> Don't think about it like, oh, okay. Uh, it'll happen when you're not looking for it. It will happen when you least expect it. Uh, maybe once you get over a certain thing in your life, then God will bring someone into your life. <laughs> the other thing is, it's going to happen 
I know it's going to happen for you sometime. No, you don't, okay? You just don't. And that's, that's it. You don't know. Have you met anybody yet? <laughs> that's the pinnacle, because it's like if you're not dating anybody, or like people just want to know how far along are you. As if, like, there's, like a, like, a scale being, like, you know, are you seeing anybody or, like, you're not telling us? Lately, I've received condolences. Uh, I could really do without the condolences. How's it going? Any, you know, new guys in your life? And it's, like, what? Like, I just finished grad school. Why don't you ask me about that? It always has to come back to, you know, am I... In a relationship or not in a relationship? It's flattering when people say, I just don't know why you're single. And then it's like that much worse because, but there's clearly a reason. Do you know what I mean? There's that dichotomy. I don't get it. Why are you single? Let me go ask my husband why you're single. You know, frustrating. And then, um, and then, you know, it just, uh, you don't know why you're single. <laughs> I don't know. If I could tell you, I wouldn't be single. That's, that's what I know. <laughs> I may never find someone. Being by yourself for the rest of your life. Staying single. Being single forever. Having to deal with this their entire life. Uh, we won't have a family. Uh, our own family. Never have a wedding. Never have a first house. When I'm 50, do I um, start thinking about, you know, a long-term care facility for myself? Yeah, we have this idea of being single and being older as something tragic. Society is kind of set up to assume that you're going to have a family. And when you don't, you got to figure that out for yourself and you have to think before the dementia kicks in. I don't want people to respond to me as though my life is is in waiting, you know, that I haven't arrived yet, you know, that it will happen. And I get all these comments, like the future is just around the corner, and that's not fair. I'm just single. I'm not unsuccessful. I'm not any less than. I'm just single. It's a perfectly valid place to be, and I just don't feel like our society is structured in a way to reinforce that. We all grow up with ideas of what we want in life and, and what those things are supposed to look like. And so, and we all also have timelines that we've set for ourselves of, of when we think we need to have certain things achieved or, or, and we have this dream and this picture. And so when that doesn't play out the way that we think it does, there's often, um, just for me, there's been despair. And so that's been hard to not compare myself with other people. And I find myself having to tell myself all the time, my timeline is not their timeline. I can't compare myself. But that, that takes a lot of energy and discipline. And so sometimes it's just, it's lonely and it's exhausting. Interesting. Interesting thoughts from singles. Um, and I would suggest that even those of, those of you who are married, there's still extreme application here. Um, the number of, of people who are waiting for marriage, getting married later, uh, increases the number of singles in our world. Uh, and then not including divorce, um, but even death. Think about this. Every single one of you, if you are married, either you or your spouse will be single at some point. 
later in life, even just by death. All marriages will end one way or another. Uh, Bloomberg reports, uh, it, it was on the uh, PBS website, uh, news website, that uh, as of this last year, for the very first time, that the majority of the adult population in the United States reports themselves as single. In 1976, it was around like 37%. And this, this last year, it just bumped up by like 50.2%. So the majority of American adults from 16 and above report status as single. Now, for, for the first 1,500 years of the church, um, I, I think... The church dealt pretty well with the whole idea of marriage and singleness and valuing both. In fact, early on in the church, singleness was actually considered the preferred state much of the time. It was considered one of the best ways to fully devote yourself to God. Uh, there's a rich tradition of singles. Uh, Daniel was single. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet was single. Uh, John the Baptist was single. And the prophetess was single. Jesus was single. Paul was single. So there's a rich tradition and really a theology of singleness, of celibacy. Now, you get to 1500. Last week I mentioned, you know, the Reformation. This last Saturday was Reformation Day. Well, the church had kind of almost focused so much on singleness that, that it really downgraded marriage. And so early on in the church, if I can kind of oversimplify it, if you were single, you sat in the front. If you were married, you sat in the back. Well, the Reformation comes around where there's been such an emphasis on that. And marriage was almost viewed as a necessary evil. Guys like Luther, one of the first things Luther did when he reformed is he went out and he married someone. <laughs> he, he found a nun and he goes, let's do it. Let's get married. Because he, 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 he said it's a beautiful thing. Marriage is a wonderful thing. He wanted, but things kind of shifted. And so if, if you grew up in the Protestant church, the emphasis has probably been the opposite. If you're married, sit in the front. If you're single... Sit in the back. And so at least in, in the Protestant tradition, we haven't always done the best job of valuing singleness as really a vocation as much as marriage is even. And yet the New Testament describes two kinds, two kinds of singles. Jesus uh, recognizes or identifies two kinds of singles. Let me, let me read um, this passage, and I think they will arise here. This is in Matthew 19.10. Uh, Jesus is talking about marriage, uh, divorce, that's sort of the context. And he's, he's making it quite difficult because in that culture it was, uh, divorce happened quite easily. And he said, no, these are the your requirements. And, and his apprentices said, gosh, that sounds kind of tough. So is it better just not even to deal with any of it? And in verse 10, uh, they said, uh, if this situation between a husband and wife, isn't it better just not to marry? And then Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. The one who can accept this word should. And so let me give you two categories We'll give kind of language to two categories that, that, that he brings up. The first one is what's called vowed celibates. Um, this, this is a voluntary celibate. And the eunuch is the idea of not married. Um, 
A, a vowed celibate is, is someone, you know, you might think of a priest, but there are others. Uh, John Stott is a, uh, the, um, he just passed away a couple years ago, great minister of the gospel who would fall into this category of someone who's a vowed celibate, meaning he said, I'm, I, I'm choosing voluntarily to not enter marriage in order to devote more of my time to this particular pursuit. And so freely choosing not to marry, but, but set themselves apart. And this sort of exclusive lifelong commitment, this vow to something. The second group would, would be the vast majority of celibates or singles in our world. This is, this is more the involuntary group. What I mean by that is either, you know, Jesus identifies either there was some birth defect, so they were born a certain way that precludes them from entering a covenant of marriage, or circumstantially they were made that way. Something happened to them in life which also precludes them from getting married. So they remain open to get married, but circumstances just haven't allowed it. Um, give you some examples. A single person could be divorced. Uh, there could have been the death of a spouse. Many just simply haven't found someone that, that they feel well-matched with. Uh, people sometimes postpone marriage in pursuit of a job, maybe a career to get in a career established. Um, there, there are even some, some marriages where, say, maybe because of the illness of one or more of the spouses, they, they have to in, uh, live in celibacy, even, even in marriage. Um, some experience same-sex attractions. And because of their apprenticeship to Jesus, they, they choose to live a celibate life. So there are numerous, numerous reasons. That, um, in fact, one of the... Uh, Suggested resources, two of the suggested resources in your bulletin on the, I think it's on the inside bottom. Uh, Wesley Hill, Dr. Wesley Hill is, um, he's a young man. He's a, uh, assistant professor of biblical studies at, uh, Trinity School for Ministry. And, um, in, in his first book that is listed in there, Washington Waiting, he recounts really the, the difficulties, the unique challenges that, um, hit someone who recognizes that they can't enter into a covenant marriage with a woman because they have same-sex attraction. And, um, and, and then the second book that's mentioned in there, it's, it's much more of a hopeful way of saying spiritual friendship, those needs can still be met. Not physical intimacy, but emotional intimacy, connection, community. And this is a guy who said, as an adolescent, I, I experienced almost exclusive same-sex attraction. And I tried really hard to read the Bible to say it was acceptable. And he said, and I just couldn't do it in my apprenticeship to Jesus. Um, so God's call on these people, it's to be celibate. So they're dedicated to celibacy until the situation changes or if the situation changes. Quick thought experiment. If you, maybe you can write a word down or just come up with a picture in your head or something like that or just an idea. What do you think of when you hear the word chastity, what sort of thoughts, what sort of words come to mind? Or when you hear celibacy, um, here's, a, here's a dictionary definition of chastity. The state or practice of refraining from extramarital or especially from all sexual intercourse. Uh, Webster defines chastity as abstention from unlawful sexual intercourse. Um, both of these, and probably the way we think about it, the way I've always thought about it, I immediately think of the negative first. Abstention. It's abstaining. It's, it's you know, just say no. 
Uh, it's, it's not doing something. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm defined as what I do not do. And I think that that negative tone of refraining, abstaining, um, saying no can sometimes come to characterize the Christian life, especially in this situation when it comes to celibacy and times in our life when that's necessary. Uh, G.K. Chesterton is an English uh, writer, and he wrote a really short essay. You can Google it, look it up online. It's real, real short. It's, um, it, it was just called Chalk. And in the essay, he recounts as a young boy how he loved drawing with chalk. And he would go get that big brown butcher paper, you know, that stuff, big brown butcher paper, and he would, and he would draw on it. And um, he said the big realization for him um, was that white is a color. Because when he's drawing on white paper, you never use white. But he said, but on brown butcher paper, I used, I used white. And all of a sudden, I realized white, white means something. It's not the absence of color. It means something very definite. Let me read you some of his words. He said, one of the wise and awful, uh, he means awful in the archaic sense, inspiring awe. One of the wise and awful truths which this brown paper art reveals is this. That white is a color. It is not a mere absence of color. It is a shining and affirming thing, as fierce as red, as definite as black. When, so to speak, your pencil grows red hot, it draws roses. When it grows white hot, it draws stars. And one of the two or three defiant varieties of the best religious morality, of real Christianity, for example, is exactly this same thing. The chief assertion of religious morality is that white is a color. And he goes on to say virtue, meaning like chastity. Virtue is not the absence of vice or the avoidance of moral dangers. Virtue is a vivid and separate thing, like pain or particular smell. Mercy does not mean not being cruel or sparing people revenge or punishment. It means a plain and positive thing like the sun, which one has either seen or not seen. And then he ends, ends the paragraph with this. Chastity does not mean abstention, abstaining from sexual wrong. It means something flaming like Joan of Arc. I like how he ends that. See, we tend to think of chastity as pulling myself away from something negative, but, but not something white hot, not, not something vivid. See, the biblical idea is that when God calls you to something, a vocation or whatever it might be, when God calls you to something, it's never primarily about orienting your life around saying no to something. Um, a calling is not about constructing your life around an abstention from something. A calling is fundamentally about saying yes to something. Uh, if, if, if you're an accomplished musician or if you're a dancer, um, you will have to have said no to a lot of different things. Discipline was involved in your life. But it's that saying no to something that freed you up to something great. If you're a, if you're a marathon runner, I've got a friend who runs marathons and Ironmans and all that sort of thing. And if someone walked up to him and said, you know, what do you do? He wouldn't say, oh, I'm a non-potato chip eater. You know, you know he, he does abstain from some of that. But what he would say is, I'm a marathon runner. That's it. He's, he's orienting his life around his calling, not around the things that he abstains from in order to pursue that calling. Does, does that distinction make sense? 
See, whatever you, whatever you abstain from in response to that calling, it's important, but it's not the most important thing. It's, it's not what you build your passion around. It's not what you build your identity around. And Scripture is calling us to see celibacy, to, to see chastity when necessary, meaning if, it's, if you vowed it or if you find yourself circumstantially as, the, as, a, as a dedicated celibate, as a part of God's positive calling on our lives to enter fully into the risen life of Christ. There's a uh, Eastern Orthodox theologian, um, and he writes this, In all cases of deprivation, meaning when God says abstain, don't. In all cases of deprivation, Scripture speaks of grace offers a gift. Out of a negative renunciation, it creates a positive vocation. To renounce one thing means to be totally consecrated to another. That is very renunciation allows us to realize let me give you one example of where Paul talks about this. Paul, the apostle of the New Testament, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Listen, listen to how he describes the things that he's abstaining from, the things he's restricting himself from, and his calling, his vocation. And look at which one identifies him. This is uh, Philippians 3.4. Paul writes this, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence... If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he gives this litany of, of, of uh, honor things, things, things that he has, cultural sensibilities that carry a lot of weight. In the Jewish culture, he said, circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, he's a Jew. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, flawless. What he's saying is, in an honor culture, this is enormous credibility right here. Street credibility. This is, this is enormous weight. If you were to do like an honor-shame calculus, he's, he's saying, I have, I have minimal shame and I have maximal honor in my life. These are things that the culture looks at and says, wow, that's, those are fabulous things. Verse 7, he says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. That's the abstention. I, I'm not holding on to those things. Those things I've let go. What is more, I consider everything a loss. Well, why? Is he just like a martyr complex? Oh, it's okay. No. Listen to what he says. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all those things. I consider them garbage. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And he says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. And I would suggest that there's two things here. There's a, there's a horizontal thing he's talking about, and there's a vertical thing he's talking about. Okay, think about it this way. The vertical thing is, he's saying, I want, I want to know Christ. I want to be found in Him. I want to experience God. He's talking about this sort of relationship. That's what I'm pursuing. I'm pursuing it because I want God. That's who I want. But then there's also this horizontal, and that has to do with sufferings and how that impacts other people, specifically the churches. Now, 
from what we know about Paul's writing other places, Paul never thought suffering was a good in and of itself. He was never like, oh, suffering's a great thing. <laughs> it's, it was never a, a thing in and of itself that he prized or anything like that. So then why, why does he say, I want to share in Christ's suffering? It's because when people saw Paul suffering, they saw through Paul to Jesus' suffering. That was his message, Christ crucified, he said. When they saw Paul, they saw through him. See, when people see your marriage, if you're married, and they see you embracing it as a vocation, as a gift, like last week we talked about this idea that the church understands that marriage is really a signpost to Christ's relationship with this church. It's, it's pointing to this final, ultimate marriage, the kind of relationship that God wants us to have. When people see your singleness, if you're single, and they see you embracing it as a, as a vocation, they see you dedicated, you, you see it as a calling, as a gift, they see you living so counterculturally, you're not jumping into the hookup culture of the world. See, even those of you who are married... You know that all marriages will end someday at the great marriage feast of the Lamb when Christ is married to his bride. If you're single, you're living in the already of your marriage to Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 6, talking about this very topic. He says, I say this as a concession, not a command. I wish that you were all as I am. He was single. That's, that's what he's referring to. And he says, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has a gift, another. One has this gift, another has that. What's so cool here is this is radical. Paul's saying marriage, it's a gift. It's wonderful. It's great. Enjoy it. Singleness, it's a gift. It's wonderful. Enjoy it. He's saying he, he elevates both statuses. In a world where if you didn't have progeny, if you didn't have family, it was considered a dishonor. And in our culture, we have to ask that question. Have we raised marriage up to this sort of idolatrous thing that, man, if you're not married, it's, well, what a lot of these people were saying. Oh, when, when's that going to happen? What's wrong? Or, you know, those, those sorts of things. And we as the church need to become more biblical in our understanding of marriage, understanding of singleness, understanding of our sexuality, of celibacy. Um, he calls marriage a gift. He calls singleness a gift. On the back of your bulletin, there's, there's something that I put in there from Pete Scazzaro, who, who, who does a lot of good work around this idea of how do you minister, lead out of your marriage, if you're married, or how do you minister and lead out of your singleness, if you're single? Because he said anyone in the church is, is really called to be a leader. So if you're single and in church, we need you. We need you to lead. We need you to do things as out of your singleness. And he gives kind of a top five priorities of here's what you need to do. Because think about it. If you understand your singleness as a vocation, as a calling currently, then you better, you better nurture that. Well, how do you do that? Well, here's five quick things. Number one, devote yourself to excellent self-care. Have appropriate boundaries in your life. Um, self-care is not selfishness self-care is just taking care of the one thing you've been given your body, your soul uh, number two invest in community and at least one or two companions for the journey you think about it, Jesus had twelve he had a smaller group of three who were his closest friends he had this one guy who in the book of John refers to him as the one Jesus loved he was like his best friend but he even had families. Remember, Jesus would stay at 
the city of Bethany, and it was Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And he had this unique, he would like, that was his family. That was his extension of family. So Jesus invested himself in relationships. Um, offer hospitality. Uh, number three, learn emotionally healthy skills to bond with other people. Um, our need for bonding goes throughout life, from a little kid to an older elderly person. Uh, be intentional about learning skills to bond. Learning what it means to even have a healthy, uh, appropriate physical touch with other people. Another um, thing he mentions is remain open to meet someone. The desire to be with someone is it's not bad, necessarily. So continue to pray that God will open doors to meet someone. Look for opportunities to meet Christian Christian singles of the opposite sex. Uh, the last one, bear witness to the Lord Jesus through your singleness. And this is what we were talking about earlier that, that I think is so powerful. You know, why aren't you hooking up? Why aren't you in the hookup culture? Well, because you're married to Jesus. And you're, you're testifying to the world that your body belongs to him. And this whole idea that every single day, let me just read Scazzaro's words here. Every day you choose to live as a prophetic sign, meaning you're like that arrow that's pointing to something, of the kingdom of God and the church and the world. And then he gives this great kind of call. He says, take up the leadership role God has for you in the body of Christ. Ministering to marrieds and singles, old, young people, out of your unique vocation as a single person. God does not grant to every person the physical fruit of children, but he does call us to, the birth, uh, to birth spiritual children and serve as spiritual mothers and fathers in our communities. See, there's an increasing number of single people in the church today who, who are leaders or who may step back because they, they feel like, well, I'm not married, so I can't lead in some way. I've, I've heard people say that sort of thing. And we need to recover, again, a biblical theology of singleness. That it's a wonderful thing. We've got people like Jesus who was single. Jesus was the perfect human being, and he didn't need to get married to somehow, you know, fulfill himself or do anything like that. He had relationships. He invested in relationships. But Jesus himself, the perfect man, did not need to be married. Um, Wesley Hill, the gentleman who I mentioned to you earlier, uh, writes this at the end of one of his books. He says, we need Christians, and I think at this current moment, we need specifically gay Christians who will try with their own bodies, to, their own bodies and lives and histories to live into the traditional view. If our culture thinks that celibacy is tantamount to loneliness, what will change that perception is if actual, real-life gay Christians prove that perception wrong by finding friendship and belonging in the church? That presents a huge question. Are, are we a community where a single person who's a dedicated celibate can come and really find connection, find relationship? Um, toward the end of his book, he also, he also quotes um, Brother... John of Tiazzi, who writes, vibrant Christian communities, he's describing what we're called to be. Vibrant Christian communities where married couples and celibates live side by side in deep friendships could be a powerful countercultural sign 
witnessing to the fact almost unbelievably to many of our contemporaries that clear limits set to the bodily expression of love do not keep one from finding happiness and fulfillment. That's a high calling. And see, what I love about this, Jesus constantly redefines what family is. There's a, there's a time where he's... He's teaching and, and his mother and brothers and sisters have actually come to take him away. They kind of think he's lost his mind and, and they're outside. There's a crowd. So someone delivers the message. Your, your mother and brothers and sisters are here. And he says something very offensive in that culture. He says, my mother and brother and sisters are those who do my will. Those who follow me as apprenticeship completely redefines family because he says family's not by blood. Well, he says it is. But he says, this now is the blood that defines family. And so that very last meal, the last supper, as he's sitting around that room with married guys, single guys, he says, your identity now, your family now, how you understand yourselves, it is, it's, it is based on blood, but it's by this blood. And so every time you do this, you, you proclaim what I have done in the world. And we see that this is a God who entered into history as a single celibate man. And he, he makes that an honorable life, dignity to it. And so I'm going to ask your ushers to come forward. We, we celebrate communion every, every week. Uh, you don't need to be a member, as we always say, but just that you have entered into a trust relationship with God through Jesus. Um, I'll ask the ushers to pass these elements. Would you, would you just hold on to them? And then we'll, we'll take, them, take them together. Thank you.